author of the Gunguha Duology and Once Upon a K-Prom. And I'm Clarabelle Ortega, author of Ghost Squad and Witchlings, and this is Write or Die. Okay. So, this we're, we're recording this pre-chat, like, really early, because I don't think this episode's going to come out for a while, but I did... We did think of a topic that's kind of evergreen, right? Yeah. And that's interesting. Yeah. One that I like. So let's just not tell people what it is. (laughs) Let's just keep on talking around it. (laughs) So vague. No. um, Yeah. Let's just jump right into it. Uh, The topic that we thought that we would talk about is how to decide on what to write next, your next project. Yeah. Which I think could be useful for so many different things. people like even if you uh, already have a book deal and you're like in the thick of it mm-hmm. you might into not know into the thick like, of it into the thick what? of it sorry into the thick sorry of it. <laughs> <laughs> you might not know you might not know like what to work on like what is the smart thing for me to work on next and i have trouble with this cuz i want to work on everything at once <laughs> yeah but let me tell you it is not a good idea Mm-mm. because Sell, you can sell a bunch of stuff and then the consequences of your actions will catch up to you <laughs> and you'll be on deadline for 20 things at the same time, which is why I sound like one of Marge's sisters from The Simpsons oh, right now. No. Um, <laughs> um, but even like if you're like this could be useful for people who don't have an agent yet and are sort of like and we get this question a lot like how do I know when to stop querying for example Mm -hmm. um or like should I write try to write to trend which is like so such a topic in itself yeah um but yeah I'm I'm interested to see how you sort of decide (laughs) this Uh, (laughs) well it's actually really it's so okay um I'll I'll start with how I used to because that might be useful for people who don't have an agent yet. So before I had an agent, I did go through a period of time where I was like, this is a really hot topic right now. Um, so yeah, I did I did the whole right to trend thing. Not not mm-hmm. because I was only doing that. It was more like I had I had a bunch of ideas. So when I get ideas, I write them down. Um, I have a writing journal that I, I'll handwrite them down in. But sometimes, like, if mm-hmm. I'm out, I, I have, like, a notes app um, document that I can write them on my phone. Just so that, like, I don't lose the thread of thought and I can come back to it later. And also, it's nice because then I can look at it later and decide if it, like, makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. um, but when space operas were being bought, like... There were a bunch of space operas that people were buying in like 2013 around then. Mm. Um, I did have a really good idea or I thought at the time that it was a good idea for uh, like fantasy genre type thing, but set in space. I called it Princess mm-hmm. Mononoke in space. And so because I saw like a bunch of books being bought as space operas, I was like, OK, let me give this one a chance. And I started writing it. So. When I look back onto that decision, I do think that I was a little bit too gung-ho about it. I did think like I was being clever and I wish that I had more perspective, but I don't regret writing it because I really loved the idea already. 
So that was one huge factor that has always stayed true throughout my whole entire writing career is that I won't write an idea unless I really do love it. Whether it I think it's like a high concept or I think it's like marketable or I think it has other things going for it, I, I won't just write a book just because it's marketable. Right. Um, and part of that reason is because like it takes a really long time to write a book. And yeah. I mean, not just because of like my ADHD or anything, but like it's it's really hard to focus on one project for the however many months or, or even years it might take to write it if you don't love it. Um, mm -hmm. And I when I started writing, I didn't start writing just to like have a career I started it because it was like a creative outlet it was kind of therapy for me after my parents passed away like it was a lot of things that I needed so I would never have worked on a project if it wasn't fun for me and I yeah. think that I still do that to this day and I think that that's why I've been able to last as long as I have beyond like all the rejection and stuff right um so yeah, my number one tip is always like, you have to love the t you have to love the concept, you have to love the topic, you have to love the project. And and that being said, it's also okay to fall out of love with it. Um, it, it happens to me all the time, um, where I'm like, this is such a cool co concept, and then two months later, I'm like, I have nothing else, <laughs> like for this. Um. So that's that's my evergreen advice. And then to go to after I had an agent, I mm. liberally used my agent as a sounding board. And I think everyone should do this. I think like, yeah, big time. I mean, honestly, this is why we say you have to have a good relationship with your agent because you should be able to go to them during these in between times when you don't like when you don't have like a contract or when you don't have, you know, something that needs to be edited um, you should be able to go to them and be like, hey, can we have a temperature check? Can we check in about like what you think I should be doing right now? Or if you think, what do you think uh, about this? What do you think about this? Like just kind of throw things at them and they should be willing to talk to you about it and answer you in a timely manner. So yeah, when I was subbing, um, oh, no, no, no. When we had just sold Gumiho, Wicked Fox, I was I was like okay what would come next though like I was trying to look ahead and Beth said okay you know if you want to actually let me rewind this happened before we sold when I was on submission I was like I should work on the next thing but I didn't know what to work mm -hmm. on next so uh, Beth said send me however many ideas you have that you want to work on and I'll tell you what I think of each and I had three that I thought were really good ideas and that I was that I really loved and I sent them to her and she gave me notes on each. And then her notes definitely weighed heavily into which one I ended up working on. But it was kind of also that situation of like when you ask someone else's opinion and they tell you what you think you should do, your reaction to that response tells you what you really want to do, you know? Yeah, I agree. So like there was one project where she was where she was like, this could be good, uh, but I like this project more like overall. And I was like, no, no, no. Let me explain to you why this project is so good. And then my need to like explain to her why it was amazing was like, oh, I really just want to work on this one. <laughs> um, 
So that really helped a lot. And then we sold Gumiho Wicked Fox. And so I had to table that one, put on the back burner. So what we ended up doing, and this is just because I love spreadsheets, is that I ended up putting all the projects that I had ideas for that were pretty well developed in my mind on the spreadsheet. And I shared it with Mm -hmm. Beth. And then she would go in and like put her little notes next to each so that I could come back to it and see what she thought when I was ready. Yeah, I like that. That that makes a lot of sense. And I really like the um, the note about uh, agents being willing to talk you through that and and helping you sort of like plan. Um, I, sometimes I see people sort of like struggling with like a decision on Twitter and I'm like, ask your agent. Yeah. Like what? Like ask them. Why are you asking us? Like they are <laughs> the ones who know you more than anyone. They know the projects that we don't know about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Susie has been really instrumental for me in terms of like helping to keep me reined in and not doing 700 projects at the same time. Even though <laughs> I still manage to do that because here's the thing. You can't control what's going to happen with projects. And sometimes even though something's slated for two or three years later, it might get pushed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly you have to do a lot of work that you weren't anticipating. So be very careful. Um, for me, um, I, I never had a moment before being published or having an agent where I was sort of like struggling because I only really wrote one book and it was just based on like my own vibes. <laughs> All vibes. Um, it was just like this. Yeah. Like this story idea came to me. It wasn't really based on the market, uh, but it also wasn't um, really taking into account the fact that people really don't like books set in the eighties or at least they didn't uh, maybe like 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. They were like, you can't do that. <laughs> it's not allowed uh, there's a lot of hate for it um so I didn't realize that right uh, so I just like sort of went for it and like it was sort of like the opposite of like writing to market it's like writing opposite to, mm-hmm. <laughs> from Martin to market um <laughs> but not on purpose and um and then from there once Ghost Squad sold things started moving very rapidly for me and I got a lot of um offers f- uh to write IP mm-hmm um, and that has been a big thing because, like, I've talked to Kat about this before. I'm someone who grew up with not a lot of money, right? And when you're offered money in an industry that's so volatile and you don't know how things are going to plan out, it is very hard to turn those things down. Mm-hmm. But it is so smart to do something like uh, you, Kat, and, like, put everything in a spreadsheet. Yeah. Um, I ended up doing that because, A, because I needed to get myself organized, and, B, because nobody can remember what I'm working on ever. So I had to make a spreadsheet to, to share with my family and friends um, so that I could just be like, did you check the spreadsheet? Cause it's on there and I've got ideas on there too. Ideas for like stories that I haven't written yet. Oh wow. And you um, share that whole spreadsheet with, with my your, family. Oh, okay. With, yeah. With my family and like with like four friends. Um, why am um, I not and, on but that? It's like, you know, I love spreadsheets. Well, I can, I can share with you. I just, I just didn't know if you wanted to be on it. Um, um, but for me, everything is strategic now, right? Uh-huh. Um, cause I have like middle grade series, so I have to make sure if I sell something, it's not going to be in like direct conflict with like witchlings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to make sure that I have enough time because, 
um, you know, promoting a book is a lot of work. Yep. Um, and when you're writing, like right now, I'm writing Witchlings 2 while promoting Witchlings 1 and Ghost Squad simultaneously. And like, well, one anthology right now, really, I've had to do work for. But it's a lot. It's a lot to juggle, you know. And um, there's school visits and there's all these things. So like once you get into the thick of like publishing, you have to really think ahead. You have to be so strategic and sort of like frugal with your time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to be really sort of like patient because, you you know, as authors, like we get impatient for our stories to come out and we don't want we have that fear of like someone else is going to write it, especially when we're newer <laughs> and especially for marginalized yeah. authors. Right. Cause we have the whole quota thing. Oh. Um, so it can be really difficult to like hold your horses. Like I have like a YA that I really want to sell. I have an adult project that I really want to sell. I have all these things, a graphic novel, another graphic novel, but I literally do not have time to do any of those things. And like, when I'm feeling like anxious about it, I'll talk to to Susie and she'll be like, well, ideally we don't want to have like two middle grades coming out in the same season because Barnes and Noble is more than likely not going to stock both of them at the same time. Mm -hmm. Like there's things like that, that you don't really think about coming into this. Right. Yeah. Um, The fact that there's all of this, like, like red tape shit that you, you you're gonna have to deal with um i wish that i could say it's like based on creativity now <laughs> um, um um things have sort of just like flowed for me in a way that like i just so happened to get ideas um throughout my journey that worked out mm-hmm. um but it was never like it was it i've never had a situation where it's like should i work on this or that right now because things moved so quickly and sold so rapidly that I didn't I never really had that option it was like I have to work on this because I'm on deadline for it um and I and I was I this was the only idea I had at the time so this is what sold so that's Um, how witchlings became your neck your option book it's because witchlings was the only new middle grade idea you had witchlings is not an option book Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Which, but but that's yeah. how Witchlings became your next middle grade with Scholastic? Yeah, it just so happened to be my next idea. Like, okay. I just got the idea and I wrote it. And it wasn't about, like, me sort of it, – it wasn't – and I had other ideas, right? And I had, like, a young adult that, that idea. And I had um, my Sims book and all these things. Mm-hmm. But Witchlings just sort of, like, took over my brain. Yeah. And I guess it decided for me. Like, it wasn't ever um, a decision that I made. Like, I sat down and I was like, hmm, which one should I work on now? It was just like, I can't stop working on this book. I think it's really special. Um, And it just worked out that Susie also agreed with me on that. And so we just went for it with Witchlings. And now it's a matter of, like, finding out when I can do all the other fun stuff that I have in (laughs) my back pocket. Um, so, but yeah, go ahead. So you, you mentioned that you have a, now I'm just interviewing you. You mentioned that you have a young adult (laughs) book, which I know is, which most people at this point should know is already written. You're revising it. Um, and you also have an adult idea. You also have another graphic novel idea. So why Mm. did you decide to stick with middle grade for your next book after Ghost Squad instead of pushing, 
the young adult book, which I know you were actively working on at the time. What went into that decision making? Yeah, you see, that's the thing. Like, I, I, I don't think it was a conscious, like, strategic decision. Mm-hmm. I think it was just like a vibes thing. Again, like, <laughs> Witchlings was like, yeah, I'm having fun with this Toads, Goose House. <laughs> this is super fun. And I also think that subconsciously, middle grade is my happy place. Uh-huh. Um, Witchbirds is a very dark book. Yeah. And I think that in the moment that I was working on uh witchlings i sort of needed something like witchlings for me as a person Mm -hmm, to feel mm -hmm. okay um so i just became obsessed with it and i just worked on that and um and it was it was never a like okay i'm gonna work on this instead of a ya because ghost squad's doing well and i need a Mm follow-up um because i didn't have a book come out this year so it wasn't about having like a one book a year thing or anything like that. It was just what it was just the book that sort of wouldn't let me go. And I wanted to work on and I didn't have anybody or anything telling me that I had to do a YA. Um, okay. So that's interesting. So, yeah, because I yeah. do know that with, for some authors, there is a strategy you know, in when mm-hmm. to branch out from their age category. And I think it's a valid mm-hmm. thought process to have. I think it's totally fair. We often say that publishing is, a, you know, it's an industry and it's mm-hmm. a career and it would be silly for us to discourage you from thinking about the business of it. Um, this is your job. And so I, I do think that there's something to be said about establishing yourself in a specific mm-hmm. category or even a genre um there's there's str- a good there's a good strategy there because you're building an audience right yeah um mm-hmm. and and so if someone reads your middle grade fantasy series then and they loved it they're like oh i love middle grade fantasy by this author what's their next middle grade yeah. fantasy that they're going to write and then if they find out you you're writing an adult thriller they'd be like oh well, I don't really read adult thrillers. I liked this author's first book, but maybe I'll, I guess I'll wait until they write middle grade fantasy again. So, and then if they wait too long, like you worry, okay, they'll move on. So I, I do get that there is a lot of thought into that. And it's something that I thought about because I did have a middle grade idea. I I had a middle grade idea after I wrote Wicked Fox and before Vicious Spirits came out. And I had some time on my hands because I had finished writing Vicious Spirits and um, I had an option clause. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, you guys might remember I asked earlier if Witchlings was Claire Bell's option and they said no. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, an option clause is when your publisher buys a book and they put a clause into your contract saying they get right of first refusal. Um, or a less negative way of saying it is they get the right to look at your next project exclusively. And Mm -hmm. they'll usually try to keep it in the age range or genre that they already bought, but sometimes they're really broad. And that's to the benefit of the publisher, and that's something that you and your agent should try to negotiate, obviously. Um, you, You know, if you wrote a YA fantasy, then you should try to only give the rights of a YA fantasy option to your publisher or YA. Yeah. Um, so my publisher had the right to look at my next YA. 
And so I knew that the next YA I wrote had to go to them. But the way options are is they often don't want to see your next project until the final book under your contract is going to press, is like ready to be published. Mm -hmm. So because I was in this weird in-between space, I was like, and I already knew what my option was going to be that I was going to send to Penguin. I was like, why don't I just work on this middle grade? So I worked on the middle grade and the whole time I was like really thinking actively in my head, do I want to jump to middle grade as my very next project? Mm. Um, and, and one of the things was that the middle grade I worked on was Korean fantasy, which my young yeah. adult is also Korean fantasy. So I was like, strategically, it's not that big of a leap, right? But I did think maybe it would have been smarter to do one more book in young adult before jumping to middle grade, just to kind of like establish that I could write consistently entertaining books for my audience in this age category. You know, it wasn't just a fluke with this one debut series, right? Yeah. Um, So yeah, that's something that I thought about a lot. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I feel like um, probably this was more on like my agents and publishers. Um, my like on their mind more where I'm sort of like just full of chaos all the time and like (laughs) I also think that like probably subconsciously like I I had a hard time with my first YA because it didn't sell twice on sub Mm -hmm. and I think that because of that I was probably taking my time and still am taking my time with my next YA and like trying to make sure I do a good job Mm mm-hmm which can get tricky also because it's like there's only so much you can do. But I think that I needed some healing time um, for myself too. Yeah. And I think that's part of me uh, sort of staying away from going back on sub with a YA and just living in the middle grade world. But like establishing yourself as an author of note in whatever your age category is, I feel like is really important and smart thing to think about and um and for me hopefully once my YA publishes um a few of my middle grade readers will be old enough to to read it and like follow me uh to the older kids section (laughs) no yeah that's totally true that's such a nice advantage of of starting starting to get them young (laughs) no I'm just kidding but yeah um I think that's totally I think that's totally fair I I also do think that you know like readers do like to a lot of readers do like to read in broad um categories like a lot of people i know who are readers like to read middle grade and adult and young adult you know and nonfiction and all of that stuff so even though i do think like there is some strategy with sticking with you know quote unquote one audience it doesn't mean that that audience wouldn't transfer like clarabelle just said um mm-hmm. so so that's something too um yeah, I think uh, that's most. Oh, before we uh, before we finish this chat, you did mention IP, and I do think it's worth yeah noting when an IP project fits well into your publishing timeline, right? Yeah, um, I th- I think that's a. I've become very very strategic about um, about IP, and I have sort of. Um, 
sort of set guidelines for myself in terms of like taking on projects, not just IP, but like anthologies or anything where it's like somebody else is coming to me. Yes. Um, and right now, um, I will really only take on a project if I feel like it is going to somehow uh, elevate my status as an author and bring me more recognition and cement me more deeply into what whatever the, you know, that space is. So, like, for example, I knew that when Marvel approached, I was not going to say no to them. <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, I am staying away from any other anthologies because they take up a lot of my time mm-hmm. and they stress me out. And I'd rather uh, give that time to my books, right? To my own books. Um, and, you know, it, it can be hard when we're talking about money. Mm-hmm. Uh, some I some people offer you twenty five thousand dollars right off the bat, and for many of us, that is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I know there's like a weird conversation going on right now on Twitter how a hundred thousand dollars isn't a lot of money. Please give me a break. It is. It doesn't matter <laughs> if it's. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. let's just be real for a second. Like that can be life changing for a lot of people, mm-hmm. even if it's broken up, which you know I obviously don't agree with. Um, and because publishing is so. Um, volatile and we don't know if you're going to get royalties and you don't know when the next time you're going to get paid. I understand all that. But that doesn't take away from $100,000 still being a lot of money. Okay. Yep. Um, but, you know, nevertheless, for some people, 25K can be a lot. 10K can be a lot. It can be mm-hmm. the difference between eating or not for a lot of people. And many authors are poor. Um, so I understand taking on IP because you need to take it on like that. There's no shame in that at all. But for me, what I had to start uh, really asking myself, especially before I started to really make money off of my books at all was like, how is this going to impact my mental health? And how is this going to impact me being able to work on my other contracted work and still being okay, right? Because the money up front is great and it's one thing but this is something you're going to have to be dealing with for like the next two to three years Mm -hmm. at minimum um and that can be a huge time commitment and so um sometimes you have to make the choice to think like for witchlings like there were three ips offered in the time that we were trying to sell witchlings okay which was like two months (laughs) and um well, right before we went on sub and every time it was like so hard because Ghost Squad hadn't come out yet. Um, I didn't get a huge advance for Ghost Squad um, and I really wanted to write full time, but I was like, I don't, I can't do it like this, right? Um, I'm not making royalties. I don't, I don't know when my next check is going to come. But what Susie kept telling me was, I think that we could sell Witchlings for at least this much. And if we sell this now, you're going to have to wait to sell Witchlings. And that's what I did not want because Witchlings was more important to me. And it was a matter of, it was like a gamble basically, right? It was a gamble for me. Um, And I had to think about what I wanted my career to look like long-term. Did I want to write books that, you know, could, could be great, but weren't exactly what I wanted to write? Or did I want to... Um, put my 
effort into something that I really, really loved and really was felt passionate about. And that's the the path that I chose. Um, Mind you, I had a full-time job at that time still, and I have a partner who works and can help me. Some people don't have that. Um, It was still a risk for me in that I knew that my biggest goal was to be able to write full-time. Um, and it it just so happened that it worked out for me, right? Um, and I keep talking about money. I know that that's probably not going to be a factor for everyone. But for me, it really was. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it really was. But it also was like, what did I want my career to look like going forward? like forward like what did I want to be known for what what did I want people to associate with me uh as an author mm-hmm. and the answer was not these other ideas which were lovely but were not anything that I felt strongly about the answer was this world that I had created which was witchlings that's what I really wanted people to read about and to be the focus of like my career for the next couple of years so that's sort of the direction that I went in um but sometimes it does take you sitting down and sort of like writing a timeline of like what you want your next five years to look like yeah um I some something like that can be so helpful and you can do that with your agent like me and Susie do that like like let's plan out the next five years like what do you want to do like like what do we have to do now to get you to publish your adult by this time or your YA by this time? Um, and those conversations also involve the financial aspect of it. Um, don't be shy. <laughs> don't be shy. Say, your you team. Say how much you want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For sure. I agree with all of that. And I think that, you know, you did, you did apologize for talking about money so much, but I just think that like people are so, averse to talking about the money part of publishing so I would really love to break that you know stereotype that weird taboo of the making the topic a taboo when like we owe it to ourselves as authors to talk about the money of it if if the only people who are going to do it are authors talking about it for other authors then at least we'll do it um yeah I think that's really important I will say like you know, just to harken back to what you said about the $100,000, like, and how that is a lot of money and how people were saying it's not because of, like, the payment schedule, that is mm. a, a privileged POV pi- mindset, right? It's it's such yeah. a privilege to assume that you're o- trying to only survive on your publishing money because that means you're a full-time writer and that's a privilege in and of itself. So, you know, yeah. for some people to be able to have that extra income on top of their full-time job can make a huge difference. Um, and it is a lot of money. And and like, yeah, I guess like if you're talking about it in a way of being like, it should be more standard that we get paid more. Right. That's a different conversation. But that's a, Yeah, though, that's right? a different conversation. Yeah. So, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say there is a lot of unfairness in how we get paid and how little some people get paid. Um, and I think those are worthwhile things to talk about. Mm-hmm. But authors don't get pay- paid fairly. And $100,000 is a lot of money are both things that can coexist. Yep. Um, in the same <laughs> bubble, because they're t- both true, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, like $100,000 as the only money that you have for three years isn't um sustainable for everybody and that's understandable but um that that does that's very different than what people are saying on 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 twitter like we have to like 
we have to get it together. Yeah. Um, and really talk about the actual problem, um, which is also like advances being cut into so many different um, pieces. Oh like gosh. that is not okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's getting Four worse. Five pieces. It's getting worse. It is. And like, I'm just, I'm, I'm confused because <laughs> everything that I read is like publishing's doing great. Yeah. Then right. <laughs> why, then why are you doing this to us? Like, <laughs> why are we in a feud? Yeah. I thought we were important to you. <laughs> um i mean i'm i'm super confused about that but anyway um, yeah let's not let's not go there uh just to go back it, to the what to write next and ip thing mm-hmm. <laughs> my thought process because because i you know and and okay i i i don't want to speak for you Clarabelle, but I do think that we're very of the same mindset that we understand that we're lucky that we're sought after by people to do IP in the first place, that people have reached out to us instead of us having to mm-hmm. audition or I mean, you still have to audition even when they reach out to you, but yeah. us like looking for the projects, right? So I think yeah. I think it is kind of nice that um, we kind of lucked into I mean, we worked hard to make our platforms, but it is a little bit of luck that people noticed us enough that they have come to us for IP projects. So I did experience people reaching out to me as well after I got my book deal and published my first book to ask if I wanted to audition for certain IP and some for like big franchises that I was like, uh, yeah, I will audition for that. Um, Yeah, of course. And and so the thing is, too, though, I think that there I had. It wasn't the money thing for me as much because I still had a full-time job as well when I first published my book. So I was, I wasn't like worrying as much about money because like I felt pretty stable at the time with my salary. Um, But so it wasn't about the money for me so much as like, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want people to, to like give up on the fact that, oh, wait, wait. I don't want to waste the fact that these people came to me, right? Because what if it yeah, doesn't happen yeah. again, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Um, yes. I, I want to, I'm so <laughs> grateful that people thought of me for this project. So I ended up auditioning for almost everything people reached out to me for. Mm-hmm. I say almost because there were a couple of projects that were so outside my wheelhouse that I was just like, the only reason you came to me is because of like, I'm the only Asian author you could think of. Um, yeah. So, but uh, other than that, I I I, um, I auditioned for almost everything, and I ended up not doing the majority of the ones that I auditioned for. Some of them I didn't get, you know, because that does happen. It, even if they reach out to you, it doesn't mean that they're going to choose you. Um, right. And some of them I ended up turning down after it was actually offered to me. Part of it was money. Part of it was Mm -hmm. like once they did offer it to me, they offered me an amount of money that I thought was too low to be worth the amount of time that that project would take away from my own ideas. And part of it was because of creative differences, to be honest. Like I would, I wrote what I thought the project should be and then they came back and were like, this is not what we thought it should be. Like you should do this, this and this. And it went against like how I saw the project or how I felt about very personal parts of the story um yeah and decided not to do it so there were a lot of reasons that I ended up not doing most of those projects but I do I don't regret 
the action of auditioning for them. I think it was a good learning experience for me, especially so early in my career, because it kind of taught me like when to walk away from things. Yeah. And it was like good writing practice, to be honest. Like it's like you're given a prompt pretty much and you have to write to that prompt like a chapter or two. And then like the you someone has to read it and give you critique on it. And, you know, you they offer it to you or they don't or they try to work on it with you or they don't. Um, So it was it was good writing practice for me. And so I'm glad I did it. But yeah, a lot of the things that went into my decision making was creative differences how much money for the time Mm -hmm. and whether that project actually fit into my publishing timeline yeah all of that makes so much sense to me and I think that like obviously you know being able to turn money down is a luxury like we said before Mm -hmm. um but I think that like I have a, an author friend who sort of like advised me early on and who took on a lot of projects early on because they were trying to make money um, uh, quickly so that they could become a full-time author. But what ended up happening was it became sort of this like hamster wheel of always trying to like catch up with themselves. Mm-hmm. And they never really were able to just sit down and focus on like um, on, on one book because it becomes a pattern Um, And also, like, a lot of times with publishers, if you accept a lower um, advance, like, there's not much higher that you can go for the next book after that. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, like, they will use that as, like, a baseline for you. Um, So there are a lot of – there's so much – there's so much strategy that goes into it that it's, like, scary sometimes. But for me, it was more of a – I'm going to – I'm going to take the risk and not – Uh, say yes to these projects um, and really hope that this project that I am really passionate about makes me sustainable money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it was a risk. Like I said, it was a risk Uh that I took based on what I wanted my career to look like. Not everybody has the luxury of taking that risk because I knew that, well, I didn't know COVID was coming, first of all, but I knew that (laughs) at the time I had a job and my partner had a job. So I was like, I'll be okay no matter what, even if this sets back my plans of like what I want to do uh, going forward. Um, but obviously, if you don't have those options, if you don't have the the, uh, the additional income yeah. or someone else helping you out, that can be really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be really, really hard um, for you to turn that down or to make a decision based on like what you want your career career to look like totally a luxury you know um so so yeah it could be difficult but it's worth sitting down to think about yeah right e- even if it means like if you have a job at the moment you can't leave yet like if you really want to write full time um just just sit down and sort of like look at what your career is going to look like in the next five years like with your agent or on your own if you don't have an agent maybe with one of your writer friends like sort of map everything out and see how things unfold and just by looking at it that can just give you such a different perspective Mm -hmm. and can help you to really uh absorb what it's what it's really going to look like time wise because everything feels really vague to me (laughs) like the future feels very like it's over there to me unless i i write it down and make it a visual thing um so that would definitely be my advice awesome okay cool 
Well, this was a good chat. Yeah. This week's guest is Melinda Lowe. Melinda is the National Book Award winning bestselling author of Last Night at the Telegraph Club, which was named a Best Book of 2021 by NPR, the Boston Globe, the San Francisco Chronicle, Kirkus, Publishers Weekly, Book Page, and was a Goodreads Choice Awards finalist. Her debut novel, Ash, a sapphic retelling of Cinderella, was a finalist for the William C. Morris YA Debut Award, the Andre Norton Award for YA Science Fiction and Fantasy, the Mythopoeic Fantasy Award. <laughs> I probably said that one wrong. No one knows how to say it. Okay. okay, good. <laughs> and was a Kirkus Best Book for Children and Teens. She has been a three-time finalist for the Lambda Literary Award. Melinda's short fiction and nonfiction has been published by The New York Times, NPR, Otto Straddle, The Hornbook, and multiple anthologies. Melinda, thank you so much for being on Write or Die. Thank you so much for having me. We are definitely very excited and a little bit starstruck. <laughs> oh, no, no need. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so um, I guess we'll just jump right into it and ask you how you first fell in love with storytelling and first uh, got into publishing. Wow. Okay. So I got to go all the way back till um, <laughs> my the earliest years of my life uh, because I've really just always wanted to to be a writer. Um, one of my earliest memories is of making up these stories about these rag doll teddy bears I had with my grandmother. Um, so I I basically started writing down stories as soon as I learned how to write. Um, I had these paper, you know, those little books you make in elementary school, like they're stapled together. Oh, yeah. Write, uh -huh. I'm very familiar. <laughs> yeah, you all know. <laughs> I made those. Um, yeah, so I've always wanted to write, but it took me a really long time to really um, believe that I could be a published writer. Um, I am a Chinese American daughter of immigrants, and I grew up, you know, with my parents telling me I could not be a writer. Um, I had to get a job. <laughs> So, you know, I, I, it took me a long time. Um, and so I didn't, although I did write three fantasy novels, terrible ones, um, <laughs> when I was a teenager, I, I didn't, that was when I was a teenager, you know, I went to college, I majored in economics <laughs> and I thought I was going to become an investment banker. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, I did not, very different. <laughs> I did not go that route because, um, I didn't want to be a banker. Like in my interviews, I talked about how much I wanted to be a writer. It was really <laughs> a bad idea for getting a job as a banker. Um, yeah, one of the bankers called me after my interview and he said, good luck with your career as a writer. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, he was really nice about it, but it was it was kind of funny. So, um, but I, I, I went to grad school after college. I still didn't know how I could be a writer. Um, but eventually I realized I hated grad school. So <laughs> I dropped out and decided to be a writer. I didn't really research it. And I just kind of started doing freelance entertainment reporting. And at the same time, I started writing my first published novel. Well, my, I didn't know it would be published at the time, but <laughs> it was uh, Ash, my lesbian retelling of Cinderella. Oh, cool. So I kind of wrote that at nights um, and weekends, you know, and that was in the early 2000s. Um, it took me a long time to finish that book. And then I queried agents like in 2007. So this is like the dark ages of YA. Okay. <laughs> okay. Back in time with me. 
Um, I didn't know anybody in YA. I didn't even know it was YA, really. I just oh. wrote the book on my own. And when it came time to send it out to agents, I realized it fit into YA. <laughs> so um, I queried how many, like seven or eight agents, I think. And um, one of those agents wanted to represent me, but it took her like 10 months to read the manuscript. So for like 10 months, I've got, I'm getting nothing. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I got a few requests and then a couple of rejections. But then when she wanted to represent me, I was so happy. And um, she was the only one. <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about querying. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just give up on this book now. Aww. Queried eight people. Nobody wants this. So I'm going to do something else. But um, she wanted it. So I... Um, agreed to work with her and I did some revisions, not too many, um, over Christmas. I remember doing them over Christmas. And then she sent the manuscript out like in January or February. And we got our first offer within a couple of weeks. And ultimately oh. five five publishers offered on Ash. And I didn't know this at the time. It did it was an auction, but no one told me to call it that. <laughs> oh no. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> I love I love these kinds of stories of like authors who sort of came up around the same time and who were like, I was just happy to be there and I wasn't a hundred percent sure what was going on. Yeah, no, I, I didn't really know. The funny thing is I wasn't I worked as an editorial assistant at Random House my that was my first job out of college I did that for two years so I thought I knew some stuff I did not know anything <laughs> okay like the only thing I learned was that publishing is a business so I knew that I had to get an agent and um so anyway I ended up uh going with Little Brown and they published Ash in 2009 and it was a two book deal. So then I had to write another YA novel, <laughs> which I hadn't been planning on. So um, <laughs> then I wrote Huntress and I've been con- lucky enough to continue um, selling YA books since then. So I'm still here in 20. What year is this now? 2022. 2022 yeah. <laughs> I, I still think of it as 2020. So I yeah. have a hard time grasping that it's 2022. But I have um, so many people. I, yes. have a, I have a, a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember what the uh, books you wrote in high school were called or what they were about? <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. So um, I actually can't remember the name of them. But the first one was a complete ripoff of <laughs> The Blue Sword by Robin McKinley, <laughs> which was one of my favorite books at the time. And the other two I wrote were basically ripoffs of the Dragonlance books. I don't know if you're familiar with those. I'm not, no. You had you had to be a really big nerd like me to <laughs> know. They were like the novelizations of Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, <laughs> oh my okay. gosh. Yes. So I wrote two books like that. And um, so these, are, these books were, were kind of, I'm sure they were terrible, but I... I actually dug out um, some pages from one of them. And when I was at a conference once, they had a juvenilia panel where authors read some books or some stuff they had written as teenagers. And I read some pages from it. Oh, my and gosh. It was it was great. I actually really enjoyed it. <laughs> I lo- That is so much fun. So did you were, did you read a lot of young adult like before you started 
uh, writing like after college and stuff? Is that why you sort of like went into that realm without realizing it or it just so happened that your books ended up being YA? I think it's because I um, basically, so one of my favorite writers when I was a teen was Robin McKinley and she wrote fantasy novels as well as fairy tale retellings, but she never retold Cinderella and I really loved Cinderella. That was basically my favorite fairy tale when I was a kid. So when I decided to write this book, I wanted to write the book I wanted to read. So essentially mm-hmm. I was writing a Robin McKinley retelling of, of Cinderella. <laughs> gotcha. And so she's published in YA, even though her characters like mine are often older. Like it's not, we're, it's definitely not early YA. It's more upper YA if you think of it in that way. So I think my book just echoed Robin McKinley's voice. And so then it very clearly fit into YA of 2007-ish. Awesome. Um, so uh, since we're back in time a little bit and we were talking <laughs> about Ash, you once wrote about Ash. I, I don't know if it was an interview, if it was one of your blog posts. Um, we are often pushed to label ourselves in the real world. And that's why I wanted to write a world where that wasn't the case. And I really loved that you said that because I do really think that publishing has increasingly become a place where they insist on labeling marginalized creators. And then they've also made it kind of like this weird catch-22 because like, they're like, oh, we'll use this diversity label as a marketing tool and we're so excited to do that for you. And we're like, oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> but I'm also more than that. So I guess my question for you is like, do you think that we'll be able to break free from this? And do you have any advice for newer writers on how to avoid getting boxed in by labels? Cause you've like written so many different genres and types of stories through your career? Oh, that's so hard because it really is a mixed blessing. Like when Ash was published, um, there weren't very many queer YA books. So it was quite unusual mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time. And I think that um, that made it stand out, you know, but at the same time, in the world of Ash, it's okay to be gay. So no one identifies as it, you know, it's mm-hmm. just, if, if you, you can do that, nobody uh-huh. cares. Um, so it's this really weird situation where I understand the reason that publishers now are on, they're on the diversity train. And mm-hmm. this is, this is great progress. Um, I mean, I have for many years, I really was working with many other people to try to get them on that train in a way. Uh-huh. And it's not, it wasn't expected that they would get on it in this particular way, <laughs> you know, where they would put the sign ons and the signs on the side of the train and everybody knows what's in the car and you, you're very clear about what's happening. Like that was not really the point, I think, uh-huh. of a lot of the advocacy work that I did and that I did with my friend Cindy Pond when we started Diversity in YA. Uh-huh. Like what we wanted was to have a space for our authors of color queer authors, disabled authors. We wanted to have a space where our books were centered, but our personal identities were not. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Like, so that's what we were um, hoping to do because at the time, any books with marginalized identities in them were kind of, were marginalized. Like they were not in the conversation. So mm-hmm. we wanted to be in the conversation, but we didn't want the conversation to be about us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't. I, I I know now that this is this was like a pipe dream. Like this would never. <laughs> it just doesn't work with um, corporate publishing. I don't mm-hmm. really know why, but it's very hard for large institutions to do that kind of inclusive. Um, to be that kind of inclusive. I don't. I don't really understand why. Um, so for authors who are writing today, I feel like. I feel like here's the thing. I feel like you cannot resist people labeling you mm-hmm. like there's just no way you can fight it all you want. But most people in this world do not know you. <laughs> yeah. So they're going to put some labels on you to find some way to connect with you. And I think that that's actually OK, because in a way it means they're trying to understand who you are. And at the same time, you have to remember whatever those labels are. They are not a true reflection of yourself as a person, as a human being, or as a writer. Those labels are tools that people use, especially on the internet, where we all are now because of the pandemic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Those are tools that people use to find others, you know, who maybe like them, but they are not a true um, indicator or definition of who you are as a person. And I think you just kind of have to remember that because it can... Otherwise, it can feel very stifling. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good reminder. I mean, it does get hard. Like, I know a lot of um, newer writers or people that I'm friends with, we started saying, like, I'm not doing a panel if it's just diversity focused. Mm -hmm. Um, Because we want to also talk about our craft and books (laughs) and not just our identity all the time. And sometimes it feels like that's the only thing people want us around for when it comes to like events but Mm -hmm. thankfully that even that is like getting better I think because people are sort of like drawing a line and saying like hey like I also want to be on the fun panels that are just like about anything um but yeah so um I, I I really like that you even though you have written across so many different genres you've just always unabashedly incorporated your own intersectionalities within every single one of your books um and so your latest book last night at the telegraph club is your first historical fiction correct yes awesome um first of all congratulations on how amazingly that his book has done and been received um like obviously you very well deserved but sometimes (laughs) A book that deserves all of it doesn't actually get the recognition. So it's very exciting. <laughs> it is. It is. Thank you. Um, but kind of in the same vein of like of what we were just talking about, like um, I saw that you once described last night at the Telegraph Club as it's just a coming of age story and it has romance in it. And it's just and it happens to be about queer people in history like and queer people of color. But it's not supposed to be about the issues necessarily. Um, Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, you said that people really do still want to focus on the topics of immigration and racism and deportation and communism that are in the book because of the times (laughs) that it was set in. Um, So like when you are writing a book that has that ends up incorporating these quote unquote issues, um, even though it's not like the focus, how do you weigh the pressure like a that's always put on us as marginalized people to address issues versus just like 
it's just the way the times were. So of course it existed, but that's not what the book is about. Like, do you feel a pressure to focus on it more or do you like purposefully focus on it less? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, you know, I get this question a lot. And the truth is I don't feel this pressure. I know a lot of writers feel this pressure. And for some reason I don't feel it at all. Uh, When I'm writing anything, I try to focus on the story. I try to focus on the characters and what they need. And um, I'm focused so much on the story that uh, I shut out those external voices. I think that that's very important Mm -hmm. because those external voices don't have anything to do with the story. (laughs) (laughs) They'll come later and people are going to say stuff about what I write and they have a right to say whatever they want. And at the same time, I have a right to tell the story in the way that I am moved to tell it. And for me, it's always about the story. It's always about the characters. And to be true to them, I have to represent their world in the way that they would live it. Um, So yeah, in the 1950s, Lily lives in a world that is racist (laughs) and is homophobic. (laughs) But that doesn't um, mean she's not a fully formed character who has her own desires and goals and interests. Um, She works around that stuff, the racism and the homophobia. Okay. Just like I do today and everyone who is, who has any kind of uh, marginalized identity has to work around those restrictions in the world, you know, as well as they can. Yeah. That's very true. And also just like a good reminder to like write what you love first because that'll like kind of show through in the writing and show through in the story and like everything else is just white noise around us. (laughs) Right, right. So your next book, A Scatter of Light, which you recently announced, um, is being presented as a companion novel to Last Night at the Telegraph Club. But I... You know, I think the fangirl in me is coming out a little bit. I obviously read the whole entire post that you wrote about it and how, like, it was a book you started in 2013 and it's still set in that year. And, like, the complications with, like, is 2013 historical? I don't think so. (laughs) But um, so my understanding is that a, A Scatter of Light technically came first, right? Before last night at the Telegraph Club? Yes. I actually wrote it first. Okay. Um, yeah, it had a long convoluted history. Um, <laughs> do you want me to tell you about yes, it? Yes, okay, yeah, so yes, I'm just like please. really, I'm really curious because I, I, I feel like a lot of authors have a book that they had to table, like, yeah. and yeah. that they would always love to go back to. So a story like this where you got to go back to that book and, and unshelve it and revamp it and do it the way you want to do it is so inspiring. So like, how did it feel to like get that chance? And also how did it feel to, try to like update the book for the type of writer you are now versus 2013 oh my god it was terrible I don't recommend (laughs) it it was okay so I wrote it in 2013 it went on submission like 2014 and that's how I met Andrew Carr my editor actually Mm -hmm. um he I I had my agent submit it to him and he unfortunately was not able to buy it then. Like I got a lot of rejections for a scatter of light. It went to basically everyone in New York. So um, they all rejected it. And a lot of the rejections, um, well, the ones that had commentary were focused on the sexuality in it. Mm -hmm. 
because there is on the page sexuality, uh, lesbian sexuality in the book, and these editors were quite uncomfortable with it. It was a little bit surprising to me. I, I mean, Ooh. I don't. I actually um, anticipated that there would be some issues, but I didn't think it would be so universally a problem. So I had sent it to Andrew because I I knew of him as an editor and I knew that he would not be afraid of it. Um, but even though he liked it, he was not able to buy it. So he, um, unfortunately, editors can't just do whatever they want all the time. <laughs> so instead, he bought, He we talked on the phone and we came up with the idea for a YA novel that I wrote called A Line in the Dark, uh -huh. which is a psychological thriller. So I then had to write a psychological thriller. So I wrote that. Um, and that's the first book that I wrote working with Andrew at Dutton. That came out in 2017. Um, and meanwhile, I um, wrote a short story called New Year that was published in the anthology All Out, the no longer secret stories of queer teens throughout the ages. And um, I also changed agents. <laughs> so many things were happening around 2016-ish. Um, so when I was changing agents, I talked to Michael Barrett, who is now my agent. And he and I actually met in New York. And I was telling him about the short story that I had just written. And he was like, you know, this could be a novel. And... I didn't really, I hadn't thought of it as a novel, but um, he was totally right because there was so much in that story that I wanted to expand on. And Lily's story was so much bigger than it than the story in the short story. So I ended up um, start signing with Michael. And the first thing we did was I decided to turn the short story into a novel. So I wrote a synopsis for the book. And Michael took it to Andrew and Andrew was like, yes, I want to buy Last Night at the Telegraph Club. And I also want to buy A Scatter of Light. <laughs> and I was like, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> I had forgotten. I mean, I didn't think that that would happen. Like this is, I by that time, I thought A Scatter of Light was done for and was over. And I had kind of gotten over it. Um. But Andrew wanted a scatter of light at that point. So, um, of course, I was like, yes. And we all agreed at the time. This is like 2017. We agreed that I should write Telegraph Club first before I mean, before publishing a scatter of light because Trump had just been elected. Mm. And Telegraph Club seemed to have a lot of resonance with the time with 2017. And so... I started to work on Telegraph Club. It took me like three years. So I, I didn't think it would take me that long, but I'd never written a historical novel before. And I had to research all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I worked on Telegraph Club for what felt like forever. And finally, like in 2019, I was able to go back to work on A Scatter of Light. By that point, I had not even read the book in like six, five or six years. Uh-huh. So I sat down and read it and I was just like completely shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I had totally forgotten what the book was about. Oh, no. and, well, not what it was about, but I'd forgotten how I had done it. You know, yeah. I'd forgotten 
I had forgotten the voice of the main character. I'd forgotten everything. I'd forgotten a lot of stuff. And I read it and I realized I understand now why all those editors turned it down. Oh, no. <laughs> not, not because it was badly written, but because it was very direct. Like I was it's mm -hmm. about a sexual awakening that this 18 year old girl has. And she's very direct mm -hmm. and she makes mistakes and problematic and bad things happen in it and so it was definitely not the kind of YA that was being acquired in 2014 mm -hmm. okay unless the characters were straight and white and mm -hmm. so I I understood when I read it in like 2019 or whatever I understood why it had not been acquired back then but um so another thing happened in the course of writing Telegraph Club, I realized it was related to A Scatter of Light. <laughs> um, this is like one of those weird writer things. Like I have these characters in my brain, right? And there's they live in this world in my brain. And I, I realized that the characters from one book were connected to the characters in another book. So when I got to A Scatter of Light, I then had the opportunity to make that connection clear. And I never would have been able to do that if I had published A Scatter of Light first. I would not have known this, and it would have been, I think, a poorer book. And because I wrote Telegraph Club, and because I wrote A Line in the Dark, I was a much better writer when I started revising A Scatter of Light. Like, I'm still not entirely sure that A Scatter of Light is... Um, well, it still has the bones of that original manuscript in it, you know, and mm -hmm. that's still like an earlier writer version of me. And I, I didn't get rid of it all. So it's it's a weird book for me to think about because <laughs> I can I can see that earlier manuscript. I'm not sure that a reader reading it would be able to see it, but I can see it. And sometimes I wonder if that still shows through and it's not good enough. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. Because I can see how I have developed and there are parts of A Scatter of Light that I feel like are great and are very strong. But there are still parts where I can see the skeleton of the older manuscript. And so I don't I don't really know how to how to feel about that. I guess that's just the way it is because um, it's okay. gone to copy edit. So it's done now. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why you have Andrew. Yes. <laughs> <Right>? yes. <laughs> so he thinks he it's can... ready. So oh. I believe him. Yeah, I mean, at and some I, point, you just got to believe your editor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or and we'll I feel never like, publish. <laughs> and I feel like we're always so much harder on ourselves anyway. Mm -hmm. So I bet yeah. you it's great. <laughs> I mean, I bet it was great in 2014. Okay, I feel like we're always, like, the worst on ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's also just, like, really interesting, like – how just like a couple of years can give you a better perspective on like what you're trying to accomplish with a book. You're like, oh, that's what I was doing. Interesting. Yeah. Past yeah. Me. Oh my God. <laughs> you know how everyone's like, when you're going to do revision, you should wait at least a few weeks, you know, to get some distance on the manuscript. Like mm -hmm. six years is real distance. <laughs> <laughs> I did not recognize some things that I had written. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I, 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 but six years may be slightly too long to wait yes. in general <laughs> as like a regular practice. Right. Um, <laughs> um, well, you know, this actually um, is in line with a piece of advice that I actually once heard you give in person at a panel that I was at. And it like changed my whole life because oh, wow. I was I was baby writer. 
I um, had just, I think I had just sold my first duology. Um, and um, I was, I, I was like so gung ho about this idea of like, okay, I'm in publishing. I finally made it. I have to take advantage of this. I can't take this for granted. I'm going to make sure that people hear about me and hear about my books. And to do that, I just got to publish a book every year. <laughs> and then I went to this panel that you were on. And I think it was after right after a, a line in the dark came out and mm -hmm. you were like talking about that idea of a book a year and you're like oh no I'm not gonna have a book come out next year you're like it might be a couple of years before my next book comes out and I don't think you have to have a book come out every year and I'm at the point in my career where that doesn't bother me and I was like why <laughs> like super <laughs> like thrown off like what are you talking about um but like I I I loved that advice because it kind of like was what like made forced me to like kind of examine why I believed you had to have a book out every year. Mm -hmm. um, and you said something like, you know, at some point, like you felt like you needed to like take the time so that you can like your book, like, like your, your writing and like your own book instead mm -hmm. of like rushing yourself through the process. And in my mind now, after talking to you, I feel like it was in the middle of you figuring out how to, how to write historical fiction. <laughs> probably, yeah, you're right. <laughs> like you were probably deep in research and on this panel being like, no, it's gonna take some time. Yeah, it um, was not happening immediately. <laughs> but yeah, like I, I, I guess I always wondered like, was there a moment for you where like you fought, where you came to that realization for the first time? Or like, what was it for you that made you finally embrace that and accept that? Or were you always like that and you were always just amazingly chill? <laughs> oh, no, no, because I had. OK, so Ash came out in 2009. Huntress, my second book, came out in 2011. It was supposed to come out in 2010, but I was late on that because it was my second novel. And as almost all writers probably know, the second novel is the worst one to write. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. hard. You're telling me I'm in the uh -huh. middle of that right now. Oh, yeah. God. Well, the good thing is you only have to write your second novel once. <laughs> So the rest of the books are not your second novel. So I, I was late on that and I, that freaked me out. And then I wrote a duology, a science fiction duology, Adaptation and Inheritance. And they mm -hmm. came out in 2012 and 2013. So I was writing a book a year for mm -hmm. the first like four years of my publishing career in YA. And I was so tired at the end of that. I was just exhausted. And I just did not want to do that anymore you know and then when I started working with Andrew he actually told me he was like I don't think writers should put out a book a year uh, mm. he's like it's too much it's too much like people start to take you for granted oh my gosh that's I what he that. said <laughs> yeah he's like it's good to wait a few he, he he really thinks it's advisable to not do a book a year so oh, I, I agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Everyone needs everyone needs an Andrew because that yes. I love how that was that how he put that. It makes mm -hmm. me feel happier inside and less stressed. <laughs> yeah. So that is why I started to feel like it would be fine for me to not have a book a year, because when A Scouter of Light didn't sell in 2014, I realized I was not going to have a book out next year. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. It really freaked me out. Yeah. So for a while there, I was really stressed out about that. And it, it really, it 
it helped working with Andrew because he was always like, take your time. It doesn't matter how long it takes. You don't have to have a book out every year. Like he would say that a lot. Oh, that's so great. And and obviously it worked for you because you, I mean, last night at the Telegraph Club, this is just such an amazing, <laughs> an amazing <laughs> novel. Gumi Young has a secret. She's a gumiho, a shape-shifting nine-tailed fox that must hunt down men and devour their energy in order to live forever. No one in modern-day Seoul believes in the old tales anymore, which makes it the perfect place to hide and to hunt. But Miyoung's life is turned upside down when she saves the life of a human boy on Jihoon. And after Miyoung saves Jihoon's life, the two form a tenuous friendship that blooms into romance, setting them down a path that will soon force Miyoung to choose between her immortal life and Jihoon's. Wicked Fox and its companion novel Vicious Spirits finds inspiration in Korean mythology, culture, and K-dramas. Wicked Fox has been called a vibrant debut novel that employs Korean genre conventions for an utterly original take on the young adult fantasy by Entertainment Weekly, and fresh and fast-paced by School Library Journal Review. Wicked Fox and Vicious Spirits are out now from Penguin Random House wherever books are sold. Also, we've talked about a bunch of your books already, um, but we have not yet asked you to let people know what they're about. I feel like if people don't know what Last Night at the Telegraph Club is, then they're like living in a cave. But <laughs> because Last Night at the Telegraph Club and A Scatter of Light are connected, do you mind giving kind of a quick summary of, of both? Because they're companion novels. Sure, sure. So Last Night at the Telegraph Club is about a 17-year-old Chinese-American girl named Lily, and she lives in San Francisco in the in um, ni- the 1950s in Chinatown, and she is pretty much obsessed with rocket science. This is the atomic age in the early 1950s, and Lily's Aunt Judy works at the Jet Propulsion Lab, so Lily just wants to be um, like her Aunt Judy. And at the same time, Lily is starting to realize that she might be a lesbian. So she discovers um, an ad for the Telegraph Club in the San Francisco Chronicle. And the Telegraph Club has male impersonators performing. And those are what we would refer to as drag kings today. So Lily doesn't understand necessarily that this is a lesbian club. She just has this feeling. (laughs) And um, she also has a friend at school named Kath. And Kath knows about the Telegraph Club and suggests that they should go there. So they start going to the club together. And it is indeed a lesbian club. (laughs) And (laughs) Lily and Kath's friendship develops into a romance. And so that so the book is really um, it is, like I said, a coming of age novel. It's also definitely a love story about uh, Lily and Kath. So that's Telegraph Club. A Scatter of Light I have never talked about, actually. Exclusive. Ooh, so yeah, <laughs> breaking news. No, it it is set in in 2013. It's about this 18 um, year old girl named Aria Tong West. She just graduated from high school, um, and she was going to spend the summer with her friends on Martha's Vineyard. But unfortunately, this boy that she slept with posted some. Topless photos of her on Tumblr. No. This is in 2013. No. Oh, yes, Tumblr. So uh, Tumblr existed then and still allowed that kind of stuff. Oh, so um, her 
her friend's parents find out and they basically disinvite her from the summer. Um, she's pretty ostracized by them. So her parents send her to live with her grandmother in Northern California for the summer before college. And so she goes to Northern California and she meets um, her grandmother's uh, gardener, a woman named Steph, who's a little bit older than her. And Aria starts to realize that she's really attracted to Steph. Um, her grandmother is an artist. And so the book is also about Aria's relationship with her grandmother. And it's about art and um, sexual awakening and how those are related. So I love that. <laughs> so cool. All your premises are, are just wonderful. And like, there's a little part of me that thinks about like having these books when I was younger that like awakens when you talk about them. <laughs> I was like, I would have had such a much more like easier life, <laughs> at least like internally, you know, like, oh, okay, I am not a complete weirdo for the things <laughs> that I'm feeling. Yeah. Um, I'm not alone, at least. Um, yeah. I'd so <laughs> I mean, I am Lily going to the club being like, this is a gay club? Like, <laughs> I'm not even joking. Like, half of my college experience was me not realizing, like, how gay a lot of the stuff I did was. Uh, <laughs> like, I was like, and then even, like, in my 20s, I was still like, oh, I'm not gay gay. I just do gay stuff. <laughs> right. That's where it starts. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just do gay stuff. I just do gay <laughs> stuff. That's, that should be on a t-shirt. I'm not gay. I just do gay stuff. <laughs> that should be the but, title of this episode. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think it's so, I think it's so great because I, I just I, – I love the idea that, like, there's so many different ways to tell these stories of, like, finding yourself and coming of age and, like – and, and I love that you're telling so many different versions of it throughout each of your books and and giving us like because because there's always this danger of like someone being like, oh, a gay Asian book. We have one of those. So we don't need to do any more. And then you're like, <laughs> um, but there's different kinds of experiences. So so like even just within just Melinda Lowe books, there's so many different versions and it just gives me so much joy. So thank you so much for that. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> so let's let's shift a little bit slightly into craft because I just feel like there will be a lot of our listeners who are Melinda Lowe fans who would love to hear you talk about your writing process. Um, and so I'm going to be selfish and ask you about something that I love, which is how you write settings. Um, mm. I just like how you describe things and like place <laughs> and time. Um, and so I'm, I always wonder, like, what are you focusing on when you're like, I need to pull a reader into this place or this specific time? Like, what's what are you trying? To, what are you trying to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, OK, so, for example, at um, in the in last night of the Telegraph Club, um, Lily goes to the Telegraph Club. So the first time she goes to that club, I wanted to make sure that the reader went there too, right? And I, I tried to remember what it felt like to walk into a crowded gay bar that I'd never been in before. And um, the first thing that came to mind was the smell. <laughs> because when I first <laughs> um, came out and went to gay bars, 
smoking was still legal inside. Mm -hmm. And in the 1950s, everybody smoked everywhere. So like when you would come home from a club, you would reek of cigarette smoke. Like even if you didn't smoke yourself, it was everywhere Mm -hmm. in the air and in your clothes. So <laughs> when I wrote that scene, the, one of the things I, I focused on was the way it smelled, because I think that smells can really bring a person into a space um, really quickly and into a memory. You know, if you remember the way certain things smell, you're right back to where you were when you first smelled that. So that's something I, I did. And I, I really when I describe a place, I try to describe it through the eyes of the character. So when Lily goes to the club for the first time, she's really self-conscious but she's also like her eyes are wide you know she's like oh my Mm -hmm. god all these things I have never seen before (sighs) so she's both super excited and also very self-conscious of herself because these people I mean when you go into a bar a gay bar in my memory anyway everybody in the bar turns to look at you (laughs) (laughs) they're checking you out yeah they're all checking you out so this is like an experience that I have had and I and I wanted to make sure Lily had it and I wanted to show the reader how she felt about that so that's basically how I approach writing a place I try to describe it as the character would see it while they're going in Mm -hmm. and focus on their feelings about seeing these things you know because you can describe a chair or a table that's fine. But it doesn't have an impact on the reader unless um, the character has a feeling about it, I think. So like, not every single item needs to be described with feelings. But there are some (laughs) that would be really tedious. There are certain (laughs) things that you have to get through the reader, like the character is experiencing this moment in a particular way. Um, So when Lily sits down at the table, I tried to describe the way the table felt, you know, and when she's drinking beer um, for the first time, uh, I tried to describe what that uh, felt like and like the physical sensations of holding the glass mm-hmm. um, so that the reader could experience those physical sensations. And so that's how I really tried to approach it through the through the eyes and the feelings of a character. That's so smart. Such good advice. I really love that. Yeah. And it like makes it unique for each book. Even like though you're the same person writing each book, each book ends up being unique because each character is different to begin with. Right. Exactly. That's I love that so much. I'm like (laughs) taking notes over here. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've also gotten better at this. Like early. This is like this is my sixth and seventh novel. I don't know how many books I've written. I have. I hope that I have improved. So, um, <laughs> I feel that I, I did a very. I feel that I really did a good job with last night at the Telegraph Club. Honestly, like I don't always feel that way about my books, and I definitely feel that way with, with this one. Oh, that's so good. I feel yeah. like that's a big issue for a lot of writers is for us to believe in our own writing because. Mm-hmm. It is. There's so many points where we are pushed down or we're like, feel like we're shouting into a void. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So at this point, you've, you've written fantasy, horror, and historical. Uh, how do you shift your mindset when writing aco- across different genres? Um, and is there one thing that you find to be universal when it comes to drafting stories, um, like regardless of what genre they might be? Um, well, I feel like each different, each book is, I have to learn how to write each different book. 
Um, mm. You know, like I, I don't know how to write books. <laughs> I know how to write the book. Well, I learned how to write the book I'm writing while I'm writing it. So because of that, um, switching genres doesn't necessarily feel like a big leap to me. I feel like it's a new book. So the new book is the fact that it's new is what makes it hard. Not that, not the genre. Um, because I do, I read, I read really widely. I read all genres. Um, and I enjoy the different genres for the different things they do. So when I'm writing, I kind of approach a genre from the reader's perspective and I want to give the reader what they expect in that particular genre. Um, but, um, that's the genre part is not the hard part. The hard part for me is that the book is new. So like for the entire first draft in every book I write, it's terrible. <laughs> I I hate writing the first draft. I really oh, hate yeah. it. I mean, I feel like I don't know who the characters are. I don't know what their world is like. I don't understand what the plot is yet. <laughs> I mean, I, I outline my books. So like I write, I use Scrivener. I, I, use like storyboard index cards on it. I move scenes around before I write them. So I feel like I have a general idea, but as soon as I start writing, none of that stuff works. <laughs> so the first draft for me is always very difficult. And it's really about finding out what the book is. Um, and then when I get to revision, the second draft and the third draft and the fourth draft, the more I revise, the more I understand the book and the better it gets. Like, I love revision. I really love it. I love it so much because the first draft is just so terrible. <laughs> yeah, I I think you're correct. I hate, <laughs> I do not like drafting um, and I like revising a lot more. Yeah. Because uh, then you at least have a rough idea of what you're doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can fix whatever exactly. is there as opposed yeah. to like making it up full sale and like I'll get really stuck on like one thing and it'll take me like a week to figure it out and I get so frustrated during those moments mm -hmm. me too I have those same experiences like first drafting is so hard for me I mean once in a while it's great and I feel like it's going fabulously um you know there are good writing days and then but then there are bad ones and somehow yeah. I remember the bad ones when it comes to the first draft oh yeah I feel like, I feel like that's like human nature that like yeah. the bad stuff like is highlighted in our brains. Yeah. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, like I love to write. I actually even even the bad days, I would not give them up. Like I I love to write. Mm -hmm. Um but certainly I find the first draft the hardest. Same. It's better than investment banking. I was going right? to say your worst day of writing is better is. than your best day as an investment banker. Way better. <laughs> Okay, Melinda, so everyone who's on the show tells us their most embarrassing publishing-related story or something they wish they'd known before they started. You could do either, or you could do both. It's up to you. Okay, well, I um, I don't think I really get embarrassed that much, except for, like, when I send emails wrong, or I feel like I send them wrong, so I don't have any good embarrassing stories. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. But I do... <laughs> I do have a thing I wish I had known. And I wish that I had known that the relationship between an author and an agent is a business relationship. Ooh, that's a good first. One. Okay. Yeah. It's a business relationship. You don't have to be friends with your agent. And also it's totally okay to change agents. 
Like people say, um, I'm trying to say change agents because people often talk about leaving your agent, but I think that that makes it into more of a personal relationship. Mm. And I think it's important to remember that it's it's not personal, it's business. Like you are partners in this endeavor. Like your agent is not your boss and you are not your agent's boss. You're working together to do something. And so it's that business partnership that I think I realized, I wish I had known that that's what it was supposed to be, you know, because for a long time I felt like I had to do what my agent wanted and that's not true. <laughs> yeah. Like you're, you're working together to create something and that's something I think a lot of uh, young writers, new writers working with agents don't understand because it's not a relationship that's well known outside of this business. Mm -hmm. And it feels so important. Um, and it is important, but it's not it's not personal. That's yeah. something I wish I had known. That's really good advice. I think it gets romanticized a lot, especially amongst new writers. And there is that sort of perception of like dream agents and all of these things that can end up being very unhealthy. So it's yeah. a that's a really good advice. Um, I would say to for all of our our listeners, most of our listeners are very young. <laughs> we we have the biggest uh, group of our listeners is like Gen Z, which we always oh, talk about. Like, yeah, they, the, the children love us. Um, <laughs> so we love we love to give them good advice. And so they don't get like, you know, caught up or, or scammed even because sometimes if you mm. feel like you have to do everything your agent tells you and you're with someone who is not like an actual ethical agent, you can mm -hmm. end up doing a real, real harm to your own career without realizing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's difficult to learn how to be a professional author you know because like no one tells yeah. you how to do that <laughs> right no one tells you it really no. stinks although I will say that at least within the um the BIPOC writing community a mm -hmm. lot of people do like did you know reach behind them and and pull me and I know Clarabelle too up yeah, the ladder for sure. super mm -hmm. grateful I know you mentioned Cindy Pond and she gave mm -hmm. me so much great advice when I was we first love starting Cindy. out. We love her. Um, but also like just, you know, you starting um, the conversation with Cindy about diversity in YA or you having your blog, which I, I read when I was first um, starting out, I think um, did so much for us to like, at least let us see a little peek behind the curtain. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. It's a mess back here. <laughs> <laughs> That's why the curtain exists, to hide I the mess. Know. I know. <laughs> No one knows what they're doing. They're just all <laughs> trying to do something. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for being on Writer Diets. It's been a dream to be able to hear about like your stories and your process and everything. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you both are so much fun to listen to. Oh, thank I've, you. I've loved talking to you. So yeah, it's been great. Do you do you want to tell everyone where they can find you on the internet? Oh, sure. Yep. You can find me on um, social media. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Melinda Lowe. So that's M-A-L-I-N-D-A-L-O. And I do have a website. I don't know if young people go to websites, but it's <laughs> there. <laughs> it's at MelindaLowe.com. Awesome. Technically, TikTok is a website. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's not just an I'm app. Not on, I'm not on TikTok, sadly. Oh, oh, you should you should go on, Melinda. It's super fun over there. <laughs> it's so yeah, random. I'll consider it. 
<laughs> anyway, we will put links to everything that um, that you said in the show notes, as well as links to um, uh, to last night the Telegraph Club and let and how people can add your next book on Goodreads. Um, and it is a rule on Ride or Die that everyone has to pre-order twenty copies. Yes, um, twenty oh. prerequisite copies, mm-hmm. or the podcast stops streaming to your house great rule (laughs) (laughs) um but yes thank you again and um hope you have a great 2022 (laughs) you too thanks you guys thank you thanks for listening to write or die be sure to check out wicked fox by cat cho and ghost squad by clarabelle a ortega and while you're at it make sure to subscribe to us on itunes and leave us a review see you next time wordies and don't forget to spread the word